0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
0: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and of course anywhere across the country... If you download the radio player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And it is a real uh, pleasure to welcome to the show Peter Lambert. He is one of the uh, Chess Institute of Canada's instructors and and uh, it's a real pleasure to have Peter on the show. Uh, because, you know, chess is one of those things. I, I really enjoy chess myself. I'm not a great player, but I have always been fascinated by the game. And, you know, chess, when you start thinking about chess at the very high level, right, we always get those images of those geeky guys sitting there at this table and the stress that they look like they're under, the timers going. And we've seen a number of films around those those situations as well. And so, Peter, it's a pleasure to, to have you to the show today.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks, David. Nice to be here.
0: You know, but I have to admit, Peter, when I was doing some research here, especially on the Canadian Institute, uh, Chess Institute of Canada, rather, I I was fascinated by the way it describes itself. And I think it got going in like 1970.
1: Yeah, that's right. Our our founder, Ted Winnick, has been uh, working at this for a long time with schools in the Toronto District School Board. And And only recently now we've expanded coast to coast.
0: Yeah, and of course a lot of online stuff going on. It looks like, you know, chess is is one of those things that operates in the background almost, I I feel like, society. But I know there are so many people fascinated. Like I said, I love uh, a great game of chess when I can, uh, which is not very often. I just wish I had more time to dedicate myself to it, if that makes any sense. I wish I could really focus on it and just... Just learn it, you know, and really do a good job of sitting down, either uh, with a good book as well as the game, and well as a player and someone that could really help me go through all this stuff to to learn it all. Because I know that that it is a game that a game of strategy for sure, but there is so much more. And and the reason I'm saying that is because when I went to your site and I I, w- I was seeing how it was describing how chess was described, and I, I want to just. Share this. It says, Making a difference. Beyond spatial thinking and sportsmanship, CIC chess programs change the way players think about themselves, the situations they're in, and the choices that lie ahead while they are engaged and inspired by everything this mental martial art has to offer. We'd love to show you more about this life changing impact of a chess program. Uh, what a wonderful way to describe it. And I'm, I have to say that it it opens up uh, your mind to thinking differently about what chess can do for you aside from uh, sitting there and being engaged in a nice game of chess.
1: Yeah, more than anything, uh, I, I like to think of the, the chess game sort of as a laboratory where we can make decisions and make mistakes. And we can try out all of the the thoughts that we might have in our head about a path that we want to take or a strategy that we want to use. And we can fail safely there and we can look back on it and we can analyze it. And it provides us just this really nice arena to test out that competitive nature that we have um, in, uh, in in a way where we can build on it and we can always see what we did wrong and nail that down to you might not be able to in a in a live action sport like maybe basketball or hockey you might know exactly might not know exactly where you went wrong but in chess when you have the the moves written down you can go back and say Mm. wow you know on move seven i played something wrong maybe this is something i don't understand about the game so it allows you to build on all the little things that you might have missed
0: how about yourself peter how long have you been playing chess
1: well, I think I've been playing, uh, you know, since my grandpa taught me around when I was eight or 10, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't get serious until um, about 12 years ago when I started playing in tournaments. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've just been playing around Toronto um, at the Annex Chess Club particularly. Um, but yeah, nothing, nothing like traveling around the world or anything, just, just playing in local tournaments. I would like to one day.
0: Right. And What, yeah. what, what attracted you to want to get into the tournament side of things?
1: I think there's something um, really special about the tournament side of chess that actually is is a large motivator to playing the game um, because it takes it uh, further than just being a game when you're just playing with you know your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister um, at the cottage for the weekend it's easy to you know not care too much about it or whatever happened is okay and that's that's a completely fine approach to take but if you are interested on Picking apart your flaws and improving on the things that you had done wrong in the past, tournament chess offers you this this opportunity to test yourself against someone who has a similar skill level as you and pushes you right to your limit. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and and the more times you do that, um, the more times that you're able to reflect upon the way that you act in situations where you're pressured um, or where you might not know what to do, and it helps us grow in that way. I think.
0: When you say pressured and uh, and putting yourself in those situations, it makes me think of the requirement for mental agility because it does, you're on a timer. I, I know, but it, it seems like it's something that that would then with that mental agility that you need to think about how many all these moves that are possible to make at any one time. Uh, it, it really helps improve your mental abilities. Then,
1: yeah, and and then even as well. Um with regards to the timer, is at some point you need to make the executive decision that I don't have enough time to find good moves. Mm. Now I need to argue in my head about whether or not it's worth it to spend the time or not. Mm. So it it makes you balance uh, your resources, and it makes you think about time as a resource or the fact Mm. that it's your move as a resource. Mm.
0: Interesting. So how would you say that going through and looking back over your involvement with chess... And certainly with the uh, with the Chess Institute of Canada and seeing young players get involved, how would you say that the game has helped you in your personal life?
1: I would say in my personal life, um, the, by playing chess, I've gained an understanding of um, what it takes to actually be good at something, anything. Mm. And chess is just the one thing that I chose, but... Uh, with the rating system that comes with chess, it's really easy to tell when someone is going to have a large chance to beat you or when you'll have a chance to beat someone else. And you see really high level players playing and you could never imagine beating them, but you might think that, you know, maybe if I came across, you know, uh, Wayne Gretzky or Michael Jordan, I could play a one-on-one game with them, something like that, (laughs) but there's no room for that at all in chess. And so, By understanding that, uh, I think I've really had an appreciation for what it takes to be an amazing singer or uh, an amazing uh, radio host or anything, right? Like there is a dedication that uh, takes us to the highest levels, and chess showed me that. And what do you think it is
0: about these high-level chess players? Because I'm sure that when you're watching someone like that at that level – and you're probably trying to, to think about what moves they're thinking of so you can try to get a, a better sense of how to improve your own game. But what is it that you think that makes them and gives them that edge in terms of how they approach the game? Do you have any sense of that?
1: I I think that the what it takes to achieve that level is just um, you need to be insatiable. Uh, I don't think mm-hmm. that uh, – yeah, I, I'm not sure if it's something that you can – have somebody get or if it's something that you just pick up on your own but whatever it is the discipline that you choose the people who get far the people that are completely completely consumed with it right so it's not about um when we're teaching the young students that that needs to be the case and they need to be completely consumed and reach the highest levels but they can pick up lessons like i have in my life and uh it can help them um they can apply those lessons that they learn in the game right. to the way that they carry themselves and the decisions they make.
0: We're going to talk about the Chess Institute of Canada and the programming that you guys have started to roll out because there's some really interesting things going on there. But before we get there, uh, young players, people that are getting attracted to, to a chess at a young age, what, what are you seeing uh, or, or, or how old and, and what do you see in these young players that are attracted to the, to the game?
1: Um, We see players regularly from six years old and in the Chess Institute of Canada clubs like maybe up to 13 or 14 years old and uh, the group is very diverse. I can't say one particular thing about the kids that come to our programs that sets them apart. Um, It it is a game so it has a lot going for it in that it's very entertaining uh, and the kids like to play it at first. It's only once they really sit down and and try it themselves that they realize how deep the rabbit hole goes. Right. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I like the way you said that. Um, And, and it is an international game. I guess everyone plays this in every country and, and every culture.
1: Yeah. I think maybe even in Canada or in North America in general, we might be, lagging behind in that or yeah. maybe not not aware as much you know I've I've heard stories and you see things in, in movies and media of people in Europe playing and things yeah. like that and it, that would be nice you know and uh, I've wanted to do that before we, we all got locked down I was thinking how nice it would be to just take some boards and set up in in a park in Toronto and just uh, engage the public whoever mm. wants to play right. yeah so yeah I'd like to see that more here
0: yeah, you know, when you say that, that's interesting. I remember, and we, we see those uh, those scenes, we've seen them in films. We see them in, in, in when we walk in a park where there are boards set up and we see people engaged and then we see they start to attract other people around them and those people start to stand around to watch. And, and I guess what's fascinating about that is that there's very little physical movement going on, right? But everyone is very focused and engaged. It's really interesting to see.
1: It's very interesting because the crowd gathering around, it, it, it always reminds me that chess at the heart of it, it's a fight. Mm. It's an entertaining fight. There's mm. the drama of it. And just because it's a, a mental battle doesn't change the fact that right. there's two people battling each yeah. other and it draws a crowd. There's an enormous drama to that.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Leaving it all out there. Yeah, that's right. Now, (laughs) listen, tell us a little bit about some of the new programming that you guys have started because you rolled out your online programming and part of that programming involves uh, First Nation communities, which is really interesting.
1: Yeah, that's correct. So we have had our online programming going for a little while, um, just dating back a couple months now. Mm. And we've been doing some school clubs like we were before. Um, But mostly we're finding with the online programs now, because they're new to us, that we're doing level-based programs. But all of that is um, extracurricular. Those are outside of school situations. And we've been trying to get something in class. Mm. And uh, the school at Hartley Bay in British Columbia um, let me come in. And and, um, I visited them back in March, Mm. and I did some lessons with the school back then. And since then, because everyone's moving to online, they were looking for something fun and interesting for the kids. And they remembered that they liked it when I came out last time. So they asked me to come back and start an online program there. Oh. Um,
0: so th- this went back prior to the online uh, program. You, you had been out there before, and, and there was some interest.
1: That's right, yeah. I'd uh, gotten my roots there in March of 2020. Um, I had gone out and visited and stayed for a week in the community mm-hmm. and taught the taught at the school every day from Monday to Friday, finishing with a, a big community tournament on Friday night, and everyone came out and played. <laughs> really? Yeah, it was great, actually.
0: Oh, that's great. Now, that's a pretty small community, I
1: understand. Yeah, there's not too many people. I'm I'm thinking maybe 200 band members might live on the, on the reserve. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, uh, it's about 600 and kilometer, 630 kilometers North of Vancouver. Um, so, uh, still on the coast, but on the mainland, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. And, uh, only accessible by a ferry from Prince Rupert. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful out there. I'm really glad uh, I had the chance to visit. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest on Moment of Truth is Peter Lambert. He is with the Chest Institute of Canada. And uh, we're talking to him about, well, chess, but also about the programming that they have started to roll out online, and in particular, an indigenous community in British Columbia, as we just mentioned, Hartley Bay. And uh, Peter, I also understand, though, that there was some interest, I believe you found, that Hartley Bay was already playing chess prior to you getting there. This wasn't an introduction to them. They they had they, There were some people playing there.
1: That's correct. Uh, There's a teacher, Mr. Saunders, Ryan Saunders, who's out there, who started a a mini chess program and had the students playing. And actually, it was very interesting that he said that it was a great way to start the day. And they'd come in at nine in the morning and play chess for 10 or 15 minutes and get their brains all revved up for the day. Yeah, great way
0: to get their brain revved up. That's for sure. Maybe a bit too much for me first thing in the morning, but uh, anyway, <laughs> it was a great, great idea. And what a wonderful, uh, a wonderful thing for uh, and a way for for kids to engage, focus their mind, uh, all the benefits of those things that we've talked about. So that, that's fabulous. And um, the other thing, as I understand that you're are you, are you starting to look at implementing this on six nations of the Grand River Territory as well?
1: Yes, that's correct. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where we are in the, in the process of getting into the school. I know that yep. we've started the conversation. We're very excited to do that. I'm hoping the work that we've done in Hartley Bay has uh, set us up to be able to deliver the program even, even better next time. Mm. Uh, um,
0: yep, go ahead.
1: Sorry. No, I, it's all right. I was finished. <laughs>
0: um, when you say school, I know there's a number of schools on Six Nations. Is there one particular school you're, you're working with?
1: Uh I am not aware of that. It would be our uh our leader in that program George Supol okay. would be talking to them. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh because there's a number of elementary schools, there's uh at least one or two other uh private language schools as well that are operating there. So you know that's why I was asking the question just to see if, mm-hmm. which which system it was uh you're sort of pro- approaching them with on that. Um what would you say are some of the benefits of the online program that you're doing and, and how does that operate, in fact? How, how does that work in terms of being able to offer uh, a child or a school something like that and then be able to, uh, you know, um, sort of monitor it?
1: Well, particularly with the program at Hartley Bay, uh, it's been a really interesting process because typically we do lessons with a student who's on the zoom call with us. And, uh, it's, it's a one-on-one or a group class. So being, um, ported into a classroom and put up on the projector is a different experience, Mm. but we've done so well with Hartley Bay. The the teachers have done a fantastic job of helping us and facilitating the classroom, um, setting the kids up and making sure they're visiting the correct pages or they're accepting each other's challenges, or I'm able to hear them with the microphone. Mm. Um, so, yeah it works where I'm up on the screen and I'll share my screen and we'll go over some positions and then I can send them different challenges and different tournaments that we can play together and the whole class gets to play and change partners and keep a record of all their games together
0: nice that that's that's really interesting that's so great um What are some of the successes that you would say that that your school programming that you you've uh, um, implemented in the past has has done for students or some schools?
1: Well, I think that some students really latch on to it. And we've had uh, a huge influx of students who, who just can't get enough. And they start with our school programs, but we always offer um, a direct connection to the instructor. So even though we're not in class right now, the, the kids know my account on the CHESS website and they can send me a message or mm. a challenge anytime. And there's several, several students who want every day to send me a challenge or to you know create a position and send it over to me or make a tournament with their friends and tell me hey look I started this up like we're building our own little community here right Um, so it's just very empowering to the to the kids to give them all the tools to do this and, and let them see how high they can climb.
0: So do I understand in what you're saying that, that a child could set up something and challenge you to a game that you are then going back and forth
1: making moves
0: with between each other?
1: Yeah, correct. And it doesn't even have to be in a single sitting. Uh, the style of yeah. chess is called correspondence. And in the, in the old days, it would be played by mail, right. but it's you know, basically one day per move. Right. So no time limit or anything. But, yeah. you know, I log on in the morning and I see that one of my students made a move and I reply. And that way it keeps us connected all through mm-hmm. the week. And uh, there's no breaks. As soon as we're done one game, we start another. <laughs> That's great. But I imagine,
0: you know, there's one of you and you have many students, I'm guessing. So do you have several of these operating at the same time then?
1: Yeah, it's true. I have 75 on the go right now. <laughs> okay. But you don't need to play the whole game, right? No, sit no, down no. and take one move. So yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I got I got it. I understand that. Yeah. Um that's great. I have a, I have a question for you. I don't. Are you much of a Star Trek fan?
1: Actually, yes.
0: So you know, I I remember seeing on Star Trek that uh, Spock would always it looked like a game of chess that it was multiple layers that were being right. played. It, it, does chess go into anything like that? Is there a, is there an offshoot of chess that is played on different
1: levels? Uh, the whole uh, the whole offshoot of chess thing is an entire world on its own, there's mm. all kinds of variants, um, and some of them are more human, and some people like to play them, and then mm-hmm. some are more like uh, games for programmers to play with each mm-hmm. other and try and make the rules as difficult as possible. Right. Um, I've never personally seen a, a Spock, you know, four-dimensional chess set or something <laughs> in real life, but that would be an interesting uh, take on it. Right. I wonder how long. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: for sure. Um, so, listen, the other thing that I was I was told about That you might like to talk about is uh, it is a a TV show, a network, a Netflix uh, uh, program, and it's the the Queen's Gambit, I believe. That's correct. Now, I haven't seen it, but I did go to look at the trailer for the show. And I have to say, I think that looks like a show I want to watch
1: they did a good job of making it that way and making it very accessible to people who don't have a lot of experience or haven't exactly romanticized chess in their own head yet. Right. right? Yeah. It does a very good job of romanticizing it like that and making the tournament something dramatic and something spectacular.
0: Is this based on, on, on a person, an actual person? Do you know?
1: I don't think it is. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't think so. There's some qualities that you might attribute to some famous chess players here yes. and there. I'm not yeah. sure if it's an amalgamation of some of the most famous personalities. Right. Yep. but no one in particular.
0: But uh, and how, when you watch this, how, when it gets into the chess element of things, how how um, are you taken by it? Do you do you feel it's it's real?
1: Yeah, I was taken by it, but I imagine that I do feel different than the majority of people watching it, because, you know, when a dramatic move is played, the camera flashes to the actor's face, yes, right, for the yes, drama. Yes. And I'm sitting here like, what was the move? I want to know. <laughs> Why are you looking like that? <laughs> yeah, so, but no, they did a great job of that, and it gripped me from from front to back, and I'm just so happy to see uh, something so yeah. prominent mentioning chess, you yeah. know, and the conversation being about that. Yeah, I don't think there's been something in the chess world uh, to stir up a, a commotion like this since maybe uh, Gary Kasparov lost to a computer for the first time. Mm. Yeah.
0: Well, it does look a really great show. I I want to check it out. Uh, it looks really well done and well put together. Very professional, of course, um, and uh, some and a great cast. Um, the the other thing, though, I guess is would you say chess has and is something that allows friendships long time friendships to be, to develop from this
1: yeah i think it is uh it's something that that two friends can get together and you know have have an infinite conversation about every game is going to be different and if if you're just together with somebody and all you want to do is relax and you know drink a hot chocolate and play a couple games mm. by the fire or something it's like the it's a perfect way to spend some time especially in the winter right
0: Peter, for people that are interested in the game of chess, how would you say that if they haven't played before, but they're just interested in finding out more, how would you say they approach the game to to try and see if it's something they want to uh, you know, get involved with?
1: I think the best way to do that is to uh, make yourself an account online, whether you do it at the popular website chess.com or you do it at LeeChess.org. But just make an account and make it a free account. You don't need to pay anything to start off Chess is they know, thousands of years old the literature is out there to start right mm. and they can uh, make an account and check out some some tactics or some puzzles or watch some games and then from there i think the the best resource lately is youtube videos mm. and you can find some some good people who have put together some content there's grandmasters on there who are doing playthroughs and discussing stream of consciousness while they play wow. uh yeah the, the resources out there are, are uh, limitless
0: I love the game of chess. I wish I had more time to play it. And uh, and, uh, this this is really nice to hear about what you're doing, what Chess Institute of Canada is doing, and the online programs that they have. And I guess we should mention that if people want to find out more uh, about uh, the Canadian uh, Chess Institute of Canada, they can go to your website,
1: correct? That's right. And that's ca.
0: Yeah. And that'll give everything you need to know. It's got the headings there you can connect on. You can uh, just click on and they'll, it'll, it'll expand and give you all that, that stuff that you can and go and find out more uh, from that. And that's the voice of Peter Lambert. He is with Chess Institute of Canada, and he was telling us about Chess Institute of Canada, but also about those other uh, great things that are going on, such as the programming they have with uh, Indigenous communities. They've got one set up in Hartley Bay in British Columbia. They're also looking now in setting up some some of that at the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory as well. And uh, hopefully we'll find out more about that in the new year. Uh, Once that gets established, maybe we'll have Peter back on to talk about that. It would be great. And also to hear about some of the students that are taking part in this as well and what they see are are some of the benefits that they are learning from playing the game of chess. That's this part of the show. And, of course, it's always great that you're listening to us each and every day right here on Moment of Truth. But, you know, don't go away because we're going to be right back with more right after this. (laughs) Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element, Element, Element FM.
0: Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, and... 95.7 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Rebecca Thomas, and we're here to talk about a new book of poetry that she has put out, and it is entitled I Place You Into the Fire, Poems by Rebecca Thomas. And uh, it's a pleasure to have Rebecca here on the show. I believe it's your first time uh, joining us here on Moment of Truth, Rebecca.
2: It is, it is. Wolaliach uh, for having me. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> well, it's a pleasure and uh, and thank you for joining us. It's, it's always nice to have new people on the show, uh, especially in regard to, you know, the arts. A great book is something you can curl up with and read whether it's digital or is if you have a hard copy that you can look at. So mm-hmm. uh, we want to thank you for uh, participating. And uh, just a little bit more about uh, Rebecca. She is a Miguel writer from Nova Scotia, and she was the Halifax Poet Laureate from 2016 to 2018. And she's also the author of the children's book, I'm Finding My Talk, which is a poem responding to the Ionic uh, Rita Joe uh, poem, I Lost My Talk. So, Rebecca, as mentioned off the top here, um, the name of the book we're talking about with you today is I Place You Into the Fire. Now, that is one of the segments, English names of one of the segments within this book of poetry.
2: Yes, that is correct. Um, there there are three words in uh, "Miguma" that Mm-hmm. Sound very similar, and yeah. depending on how long you hold a vowel sound, it uh, it changes the meaning drastically.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. Can you explain that to us and and share with us? Because they're also the the names, like you said, they're the names of the sections within your book.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the word uh means "I love you," and then if you hold the "a" sound longer, so it's gesalo, it means "I hurt you," uh, and then if you hold the first two vowel sounds long. Ge uh, lo. It means I place you into the fire. Hmm.
0: And what you know? It's interesting because the k is, sounds uh, like a soft g sound there.
2: Yes, absolutely. So ks are gs, ts mm-hmm. are ds, ps are bs. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Some of that is, just, is is similar to the the uh, the uh, uh words that you once you get into the English translations and you see the way the letters are the K is something is also a G as well. So
2: yeah, it's I guess it's kind of like the limits of like a Ro, like a, a Roman alphabet <laughs> mm. when you're trying to spell something that was never written down.
0: Yeah, I mean it's very interesting that you picked those three words, all variations of each other. How does that relate to? how you how you organize this book?
2: Um, well, it was the brilliant idea of my editor, mm. uh, Whitney Morin. Um, I had wanted to name the book, I Place You Into the Fire, because as somebody who didn't grow up speaking Mi'kmaq and mm. is kind of learning it as best I can, piecemeal here and there, mm. uh, I remember learning about Gaisalul, Gaisalul, and mm. Um, and being really struck with how you know, sometimes the best of intentions can come out meaning something very different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um Whitney just said, you know, I read through all of your poetry and there are very distinct themes. And so I wanted to arrange them. You know, with I love you, talking about love of culture, love of family, I hurt you, what it's like growing up the way that I grew up, you know, mm. with a lot of abuse and violence. And then also mm. how you call to task Canada, how you kind of you know hold their feet to the fire, so to speak, You kind mm. of put an urgency there. And so it was her brilliant idea to arrange them that way. And she suggested it. And I immediately knew that that's how the book was going to be um, laid out. <laughs>
0: great and so can we dissect that a little more then how would you say yeah. that you have have arranged the poems within each of those sections to somehow reflect and and follow because it it, it it feels somewhat like a book and chapters unraveling somehow does that make sense
2: yeah and like and again i feel like i wish i could take all the credit you should be interviewing <laughs> with me <laughs> because uh when it comes like I she would run these things up by me and I would say like, yes, like mm. that's that's great. Like I have um, I'm 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 lucky or I have been told that I have a very, you know, uh, strong gift when it comes to words and mm. trying to convey meaning in really unique ways. Mm. But when it comes to kind of like this, like technical or like big picture or what I would consider like the the artistic merit of the book like mm. not just the content um that's where i feel like i fall short significantly and i really rely on on like the you know the minds of my editors to make those suggestions because when it comes to like the purpose of my poetry it isn't necessarily because i'm interested in becoming a famous writer or poet or so on and so forth but rather i want to open people's minds up to perspectives that they've never seen before i want people to have empathy and understanding for indigenous people instead of criticism and suggestions <laughs> and i want um eventually to make this world you know better for my community than you know when i came into it you know i want mm. the, uh, and so like those are the purpose like that's the purpose like that's what i'm doing and as for like you know making it beautiful <laughs> and making it flow <laughs> that that was my editor and i i I'm very thankful that I had her.
0: Well, you know, uh, no one works alone, right? We all need people around us. And if you've got great people that can help you, all the better, right?
2: Absolutely. And, and knowing, knowing where, like, I'm, I'm very fussy about the content of my poems. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very, there. she would make some suggestions in, like, these kind of really great, worded and, you know, well advocated reasons of why she thinks certain things should change and I would say, "Nope." <laughs> <laughs> but when it came to the order of things, yeah. she had a vision that I didn't have. And right. so, um I'm very fussy about my poems, mm. but the order in which they went in, mm. I wasn't as fussy about.
0: Okay. It, can you tell us a little bit about how you first got interested in poetry and writing?
2: Yeah. Um I have I've always read since I was a little little kid just consumed novels and books and things like that so mm-hmm. I always had a love of language um, and then when I was in university I did a lot of academic writing I have um you know a master's degree in, in social anthropology and I you know wrote lots of academic papers and those sorts of things so I've always written as well for mm-hmm. a long time mm-hmm. but when it came to kind of like writing with you know, in this way, I have to give credit to Elle Jones, who was the poet laureate before me in Halifax. And she wrote a lot about um, uh, you know, a black experience, being a black woman, um, mm. kind of like talking a lot about violence and um the way that prisons are being filled with people of color and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And she did this, she I mean, she's a brilliant woman, PhD candidate, you know, she and she took all of this kind of academic knowledge and, and and put it in this way that was so um, compelling and so emotional and if you've ever read any academic papers is there anything but compelling <laughs> and emotional and I just I fell in love with that style and I thought that maybe I could try something like that because mm. I had seen her perform a few times and so I tried it um And it worked. And she was Mm. the first one who invited me up to stage to perform. She was the one who recommended I apply for the Port Laureate position. I owe so much of being brought into this world to Elle Jones. She was just you know, a tremendous
0: mentor, um, when it came to poetry. Wow. Well, that's so nice that you're able to, uh, you know, pay that back to some degree by mentioning her. Glad I asked that question. What a, what a great yeah, response. Me
2: too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, now you just mentioned that you, you've been reading your whole life. You read when you were younger.
2: I remember like, so my dad went to residential school and mm-hmm. with that You know, he lost a lot of his kind of really grounded connection to like a Mi'kmaq story Mm -hmm. and a Mi'kmaq history. Um, And I remember I had lots and lots of kids books that my dad would bring home, you know, when he would. My parents separated very young and Mm. he was in and out of my life. But when he would come home, he always brought children's books. He always brought creation stories, Mm. but they were never Mi'kmaq, right? I have Mm. lots of, you know, Anishinaabeg. I have lots of kind of Cree stuff. I Mm -hmm. even have stuff like West Coast, like Pinglet kind Mm -hmm. of. Um, things, but never any like really Mi'kmaq stuff. Every once in a while, I would have a book about Goose Cap, who's our kind of mythical hero. Mm -hmm. And I, so I read a lot about, you know, indigenous creation myths and stories and all of those sorts of things. And I remember being really fascinated, but also feeling slightly disconnected because I, I was like, you know, I would be this little kid and be like, wow, I wonder what it's like to be Native <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, not making that connection that mm. that that was my story, right, and it was only as a but it kind of continuously sparked, and I took a lot of those teachings you know, to heart, mm-hmm. not necessarily recognizing that I was applying kind of like these indigenous teachings to me as an indigenous kid, because it wasn't anything that really was explained to me or, you know, sunk in mm. until I was much older and somebody else labeled me as mm. an Indian. Mm. Did it all of a sudden start to click? Right. Like, oh, oh interesting. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You, you kind of um, make uh, a point of that, actually, in the uh, your author's notes, right mm-hmm. your author's notes mm-hmm. about uh, getting very nervous about performing uh, to an indigenous audience from from exactly what you just said are you yeah. are you, you you good enough to be at, you know to call yourselves one of us do you do you feel mm-hmm. native enough and i think so many indigenous people feel that way right because of our our upbringing and because of 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 not being able to uh, have that experience and and so i think a lot of people would identify with that
2: Absolutely. And it's still, it, I still get like nervous uh, Mm. about it. I'm feeling a lot more secure in my identity because, you know, understanding that it's, it's a lot, it's not my fault. Right. Right. I took it for so long as like a personal failing, right? especially when white people would, you know, would say things like, Oh, can you say this or can (laughs) you, you know, and I didn't have answers. Right. Right. And, and, and feeling like I'm failing. And, Mm. And not only that, but like what got pushed onto me, as being a native identity Mm -hmm. um and i remember distinctly was you know the pocahontas disney movie Mm -hmm. and here was this uh, you know these this very kind of exploited story taken by this kind of mega conglomerate white owned organization Mm -hmm. and kind of put out that very classic noble savage mythical indian and i would watch that and i would recognize The overarching themes because of the books that I would have as a kid. And um, I would, you know, try to make that connection and being obsessed with Pocahontas and loving it so much because it was, and it was very tragic because well, one, it was awesome in that it was finally Indigenous representation, but it was tragic in that Mm -hmm. it kept pushing this very specific identity. And if you didn't have that identity and you weren't this kind of you know, I always often joke that we are the elves from the Lord of the Rings. If you didn't have that sort of identity, then you weren't truly a Native person. And mm. so I found myself in this kind of identity limbo. Mm-hmm. And then so when it came to facing Indigenous people who I perceived through my own internalized stereotypes were quote unquote real Indians, mm. I all of a sudden felt tremendously insecure that mm. I would be judged or that I would be you know, called out, and we do experience lateral violence sure. in our communities. Oh. It's something that happens with generational sure. trauma, yeah. right? Like yep. it's it's a it's a result of colonialism, yeah. and and even though even though I intellectualize all of this sort of stuff, sometimes emotionally I still really feel it, and I remember specifically sure. being language shamed in front of a ton of people when I was trying to, to speak or to say something. Mm. And it just kind of, and I clammed up for right. a very long time. I didn't want to introduce myself in Nigama. I didn't right. want to use Niigama words right. because this, this person made me feel and refused to teach me. I remember asking, we were surrounded by tons of people. And I said, I'm sorry I said it wrong. Can you, can you tell me how to say it correctly? And he's like, nope. I will not. That's your job. You the least you can do is figure out how to say your own words properly. Wow. And and I was like, well if nobody will teach me right. how am I supposed to do this? Right. And I just remember I kept it together. Yeah. I like kept it together. I had done some poetry. I shook hands. I, you know, chatted and then I made it to my car and I just I broke down and mm. I cried so hard. Mm-hmm. And I called one of my friends whose mom is a linguist, a Mi'kmaq linguist. And I was like, and this happened and this happened. And he was so <laughs> funny because he grew up, on, he grew up on reserve and right, he was, right. you know, he grew up really immersed in the culture. Right. And he goes, "Oh, that guy—he's such a dink. Don't worry about him." <laughs> and it was just such this—it was just such a warm experience of right. me growing up off reserve, outside community, right. reaching into somebody who grew up on yeah. reserve, who was surrounded by language, who yeah. comforted me in that, and it was such an affirming experience. But at the same time, it made me very afraid to right. speak to try yeah. because I was afraid, I was embarrassed. Yeah. I was embarrassed and I was ashamed. And I
0: still feel that, but I'm oh, working yeah. through it. <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you exactly. Boy, do I ever hear you on this. Uh, loud and clear. And I'm, I'm sure <laughs> we're not alone. So uh, no. I appreciate you sharing that story. Absolutely. Before we go further, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. I'm your host, David Moses, and my guest is Rebecca Thomas. And she is the author of a book of poems, her, her newest work. It's called, I Place You Into the Fire. And uh, we are talking about that as well as other things. So it, it's a pleasure to have Rebecca with us. And, you know, some of those things you were talking about, you do actually reflect on in this book of poetry. There are many things that you just mentioned uh, going back in there, a bunch of words that triggered remembrances of, oh, yeah, that's that was in this poem, or there's several several other poems that you reflect on. And and it sounds like, you know, not only does this, this book of poetry take us on a journey of time, uh, you know, maybe when you were younger, as as you evolved and got older and and found yourself and and through your education and and then it we get personal though it's about family, it's about your upbringing to some degree um, and but then there's this larger reflection on the history of indigenous people that is rolled up in there and, and the, the its relationship to Canada and uh, there are these interpretations, you know, and I, I, the first thing that came to mind as I started to read one of the poems, and I'm sorry, I don't remember which one it is, the one that does come to mind though is, is the Canada one, something Canada.
2: Uh, Oh, Creature Canada? Creature
0: Canada, thank you. Yeah. But you personify the these issues to some degree and oh and, and then there's the other one about the uh, the relationships that Canada has had reflecting oh <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> the
2: dating history of North America yeah
0: and it's wonderful because it gives us this different approach and, and look at you know it because it brings it into a very personal perspective for us right
2: yeah, absolutely. And that was the point of Creature Canada. I remember mm. I was invited to speak at the Walrus Talks, which were going on with Canada's 150th mm. kind of, you know, year of confederation and all of this sort of stuff. And they said, like, you know, you had seven minutes and we want, you know, and it was kind of like this, like, oh, you you can just do your poetry thing. Mm. And I was like... Well, (laughs) I'm not just going to do my poetry thing. And I want it. And I was, and I was really like, here I was, and I always try to think very strategically. Um, Here I was, you know, given this fantastic opportunity to have a national stage Mm. over something that so many people wanted to celebrate being like, whoa, let's put a pin in this for a minute, like a celebration for some people is not a celebration for many others. Mm. And so I wanted to find a figure out how to do this. And I thought about maybe doing like creation story of, you know, like our creation story, mm. like Negema creation story. And I was like, no, I don't think that that's not quite what I'm looking for either. So then I just thought, I was like, well, and this is, it made me really nervous. And I was like, am I allowed? to make my own creation story. (laughs) like Does that go against the rules of tradition and culture? I don't know. Right, I know. But I wrote it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and so it was very kind of new ground for me. It Mm. wasn't in rhyming prose or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Um, And so I just wanted, I thought about Canada as this creature and thinking about like, you know, democracies and you know we have our own councils and like the way in which we traditionally you know govern is based off of trust and where we want to lead our communities and all that sort of stuff and so I started just kind of imagining um, Canada as this creature and here's a throwback for you did you ever watch or remember the movie Fern Gully
0: oh I remember the name
2: Yeah. And so the bad guy was like pollution and it was trapped in a tree. And at first when they cut into the tree, it was just this kind of like wispy smoke. And the more pollution it ate, the more trees that got cut Mm. down, the stronger and stronger Mm -hmm. it became until it turned into this really big, powerful, scary (laughs) kind of creature. And I was I became really kind of fixated on Mm. that idea that Canada itself, it it, it's become this big kind of nation. Mm. But it started off. As, you know, the first time, you know, John Cabot set foot, like on our soils, right? right? Like it started off this idea of it was one individual who showed up. Um, So very, very small. And so it, it, it gained momentum and it gained power through the people that believed in it. And then it kind of ballooned into this huge thing. But the thing is, is that it was only ever led by certain people. But now we are this collective of diverse people. So hopefully that notion that the creature is blind so we can lead it to where we want to take it. And so Canada became this, this creature and so it is a living and breathing entity. And so it can shift, it can change, it can be better, it can be worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just like the idea that Canada is a concept of a living creature, that it lives in our minds and that we give it power. Just made for an excellent concept for writing about history.
0: Yeah. And, and you know what else I think is really interesting about that is that, of course, by personification of of Canada and North America per se it, it takes it right back to indigenous you know philosophy and beliefs that everything is alive anyway
2: yeah absolutely and that there is a consequence and right. that we are not above something and right. that something isn't there for us to use that we are a part of this mm-hmm. collective and that I'm no more important than a forest that has yet to be you know um, logged and mm-hmm. so how do we how do we kind of create that sense of urgency and equity and equality in the way not only as we view people, you know, because we are not all equal in this country no matter how much people try to believe and tell us that we are to like expand that to things beyond just humanity because mm. i think humans have a terrible sense of hubris and that we believe and think a lot of ourselves right <laughs> yes um and that if we can extend that compassion that we have for people to that of the environment and the world and our futures our collective futures then that i think is my work can help do that, then that's something that I'm trying to do.
0: You know, it's really interesting when you say we have this, we think of ourselves as very important, but um, I think that our, our forefathers, our indigenous forefathers had, mm-hmm. had the the foresight and the understanding to realize that we are not who we think we are.
2: Absolutely. And like, we have a word for it, like in our meeting law, it's called Nadugulum, mm. And it's like, I, like I, you, there's so many kind of long pieces and like scholarly bits on it, but like mm. when it boils down to it, it it kind of comes down to this idea where it's like there's a, a responsibility where it's like I cannot take too much. Mm-hmm. I have to be mindful. I yeah. cannot take too much. And can you imagine if all of our economies and the way we are or like organized, you know, ourselves globally, if we had that mentality of I cannot take too much? I think you would see a drastically different world. I think of billionaires. Yeah. There's no, nobody needs to be a billionaire. And here you have right. these individuals who are making tens of billions of dollars yep. and not recognizing that they're taking right. too much. You,
0: you know, I and, think that that would also reflect back into to how we deal with each other as well. You know, our relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if greed and financial gain wasn't the, the only thing that seems to be focused on and, and you know, it, w- it was placed back in terms of uh, taking care of the planet, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think that, like I said, uh, this would all this would all reflect back into into how we um, how we deal with each other on a personal level as well.
2: Yeah. And how do we hold ourselves accountable, like mm. as Indigenous communities, because we do have Indigenous communities and economies and people, sure. Sure. you know, who do take too much, and mm-hmm. that becomes a really difficult conversation to have because as Indigenous people and like as Miwok people, we get scrutinized so much already mm-hmm. that. If, like there's almost this like at least for me sometimes this like anxiety or fear of like calling out like my own community because like we are already under a microscope. Mm-hmm. The last thing I want to do is like publicly intensify that scrutiny. But mm-hmm. at the same time, how do we you know hold our own communities accountable so that we can live in and, and walk in a good way that mm-hmm. sh- that makes a good example? Mm-hmm. And we you know that kind of gentle calling in of our own community so yeah. that we can kind of continue on this kind of piece of of like, listen to us. We are the stewards of this land. We understand so that, you know, we want to make sure that we, you know, we're not taking this land for us, but, you know, we're borrowing from our grandchildren. That's right? right. Like That's adage. Yeah. So we have to keep ourselves in check too. And that yeah. always makes me nervous when I have to have these conversations with white people.
0: <laughs> ah, I hear you. And there's one poem that I'm looking at. Footnotes.
2: Yeah. Um. Thank you very much. This was one of the few poems that I get very, like, um protective of that Mm. if any kind of recommendation came through on Mm. to change to change these lines, I would say no. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) And um a lot of it was just kind of thinking about how so much of like histories as it gets taught get relegated to like, you know, books and chapters and Mm -hmm. footnotes and things like that. But like not recognizing that like so much of it is being glossed over Mm -hmm. and so much of it is being pulled from, you know, one specific perspective. And once that perspective gets put down on paper with a copyright, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it gets taken as gospel. It gets taken as the truth. And Mm. so I wanted to kind of challenge (laughs) that and also recognizing that sometimes we get relegated to the footnotes. And so to kind of take up space as the chapter instead.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Nicely said. Listen, we we don't have too much time left, but because of your book, I was actually challenged when thinking about this and going through your, your poetry, trying to figure out, how it made me feel, you know, how your approach made me think, look, uh, absorb the information. And so, if you don't mind, I'd like to share this with you just from what I wrote down. Of course. So, Rebecca Thomas's uh, I Place You Into the Fire, a book of poems, is, you know, a, a reflection on a social uh, commentary that weaves words into fabric, creating a, a contemporary blanket of patchwork design, a, bl- a blend of natural and synthetic materials that is intertwined with personal and historical reflections, sometimes beautifully, other times deliberately awkward and uh, politely repulsive, while introducing the reader into a world of personification of place and thing.
2: Interesting. Are you done? I did not Yeah, have stopped.
0: yeah, I am. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there, I, the, I really liked, I really liked the, the imagery of blending natural and synthetic. I thought that was very, I liked that a lot.
0: Well, I, you know, that's what was coming out of here because it felt like that's what the history of this nation was, of Canada. It's a mm-hmm. mix of the indigenous and the non-indigenous, sometimes butting up against each other, sometimes beautifully, you know, working together, um, but always uh, moving forward, you know, out of mm-hmm. it all. And uh, so that's what made me think about that, and and that goes back to that that uh, yeah, it really felt like it was you were weaving something here, you know, pulling all these things together, and and trying so that's, very much to,
2: because yeah. I think yeah, it's it's this kind of consistent reminder that so often, like we don't recognize even within our own communities that like we are like we are these patchworks that kind mm. of get sewn together. Mm-hmm. Um, That the perspective and experience of an indigenous woman is very different to that of an indigenous man, right? Right, And understanding because when we look at the history of colonization, patriarchy came with that. Mm -hmm. So even though collectively as indigenous people, we were made to be less than, women were pushed even further down right and for us being fairly eg- egalitarian societies that was like an additional blow to indigenous women and kind of really recognizing how that history like impacts and affects us and that constant like I liked how you said like re-examining in constant like absorbing and sometimes it's awkward sometimes it's forced um and and that and it's it's just like I think it's this constant exercise we talk you know you, we hear of those seven sacred teachings, and that kind of mm-hmm. gets thrown around a lot across you know in a very pan indigenous way, but at the same time, some of that information and some of those that content is so important, and so I really, really relate to and try my best to uphold humility mm. um and patience uh and love as like those ones that are that are very difficult mm. i think to continuously have because I think you know, going going all the way back to the beginning of the conversation about that shame around language, mm. because, you know, for me, it took me a long time to have the humility to say, I don't know mm-hmm. and that doesn't make me less Mi'kmaq, right? Right. right? Like Having that humility that I am always learning and I will, I will be learning until the day that I die, whether it is language, whether it is perspective, whether it's history, whether it's learning who my cousins are, because that comes out all the time. I go to events and they're like, Oh, you know, so and so. I'm like, Yeah, that's my dad. It's like, Hey, yeah, you know, we're cousins. <laughs> and I'm like, that's so cool. And I love that. I love that. But I think it's also important that we remember our teachings, like that song, that, that poem we have that I have is called Ancient Memories, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like to remember what we forgot and like, you know, we, we owe it to ourselves to remember mm. um, so that we can, you know, build a more beautiful word. It's like we're trying to put to back together a puzzle, but half of the puzzle pieces have been taken away and mm. thrown away. And so mm. we have all these kind of holes that we now have to fill with new culture and 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 as indigenous people, we get to define what that is, right. which is really cool and really exciting. So I think it, it's important to remember, and I think it's important to, to kind of be flexible and to have humility and all mm. that good stuff. Right. I and mean, it's just I don't know, I'm gushing now about <laughs> native people because I love us so much. <laughs> such pride, yes. such pride in our communities and what we've endured, endured, and mm. how we've thrived. And you know, uh, I just. I love our communities and I'm just so proud of everything that we've accomplished.
0: Nicely said. I also liked your comment about going somewhere and being introduced to to, to new people that are related. I I know that one very well as well. Always finding out, hey, we're cousins. And uh, I think I'm related to you. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I I have this very crass joke and it's my husband's white. And I often joke that the reason I ended up marrying him was because at the time I didn't know who my family was. (laughs) I just had to be careful. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, one last thing. I didn't want to (laughs) to marry my cousin. Yeah,
0: right. One last thing before we go. So the other thing is you do have a poem in this book called I'm Finding My Talk. How does that relate to your earlier book?
2: Um, it is that poem that okay. is, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's the exact same poem, but it got, you know, I want it. The, the, the thing is, is like with a kid's book, it's so often then adults may not think that that kid's book can be mm. reflective mm-hmm. for them. Mm. So we wanted to put this in this collection of poetry as well to like sneak Sneak a kids book teaching mm. into my poetry right. uh, book and collection, which is more skewed towards an older audience. Um, and so, yeah, because I think a lot can can come out of you know you're finding your talk, whether right. it's your confidence, whether it's your actual literal words. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Okay,
0: okay. Um, Rebecca. Where can people get a hold of your your book?
2: Um, you can order it directly from Nimbus Publishing. Okay. So you can order it online. Yep. Um, it's also, I believe, in, like, chapters and indigos, Great. and I, you can get it on Amazon. Mm. Um, I always encourage you folks to see if you can find any local book shops. Yep. I think Jeff Bezos has plenty of money. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so if you're able to do that, that would be most excellent. And like, yeah, you can get it shipped directly in Canada mm. from the, um, the publisher. So, um, You're supporting a local publisher that does a really good job of trying to bring in, you know, indigenous and black and people of color authors. So right. authors of color, I should say. Right. So I would recommend you get straight from them.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. It was a real pleasure speaking with you and congratulations and all the best.
2: All right. you know, Well, Aliyah, thank you so much. And multis. hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again sometime
0: soon. Absolutely. I love that. I, lo- I would love to be able to catch up with you again in the future. So take care. And Jimmy miigwech and yao for uh, joining us.
2: Thank you so much.
0: All right. Bye-bye. Bye. That's the voice of Rebecca Thomas. She is the author and poet of I Place You Into the Fire. It's her latest offering. And uh, she's, as you said, you can order that from Nimbus Publishing online and you can get it also at your, look for your local bookstore. You might be able to find it there. And it's been a pleasure having her on the show. It's always a pleasure having you listen to our show each and every day right here on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. We will see you again tomorrow.